Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people, and when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content too, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, guys, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. Thanks for being here. Thank you for uh, tuning in. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California, and I am particularly exhausted. It is Thanksgiving week. The holidays are here. They are upon us. And I was at Disneyland yesterday in Anaheim. I was there with my daughter and with my sister and uh, her husband and their three girls and my parents. And it was a big family outing. And the crowds were insane. They were insane. The word suffocating comes to mind, smothering, overwhelming, crushing, you name it. Uh, it was beyond belief. I can't describe it to you properly in words, but what I can tell you is that right now I feel like all of the energy in my body has been removed with a large vacuum or something along those lines. And uh, otherwise, I want to start today with some more mail. I've been receiving a lot of email from listeners, which I really appreciate. The last episode, episode 123 with Sam Pink has generated an interesting response, some of it positive, some of it not so positive, but all of it infused with great enthusiasm, I guess you could say. So I figured I would read some of the responses uh, that I have gotten over the past 48 hours. So here we go. A listener named Kiko says, 
Who is this clown? Some spoiled white kid who does not even know where daddy gets his money that sends him to community college to sell dope, and he quits before the cops catch him and has made a bunch of money, and then this fuck has the nerve to say he finds school easy? I've never heard of this hack before, but after listening to him, I hope I never hear from him again. Brad, I applaud you for enduring an hour with this little prick, but I quit him after 30 minutes. And then a listener named Raymond says, I think Sam is the shit. I remember once I emailed him and said I bought his books and he called me a bitch-ass hoe. It was gratifying. And then a listener named Ty says, I just finished listening to the latest episode with Sam Pink and it was very painful to get through. This is not meant as an insult to your talents as an interviewer. I don't think anyone could successfully engage Sam Pink in conversation. I did have his book in my Amazon wish list, but I am considering removing it based on what I heard. Sorry for the ranting. Out of the 70 plus episodes I have listened to, I think he is the first person I haven't liked. And then a listener named Haley says, I like the interview a lot. Probably my favorite of what you've done. Definitely the funniest. I laughed more than I had in the previous five days combined. Uh, I think I've been in the situation Sam was in near the end where he was answering every question with, I don't know. I've done that a lot. And I feel like when I've done that, I just really don't know. And I always feel bad when I say something instead of saying, I don't know if I can't say something accurately at the moment. Uh, I also think Sam and I have similar views on feeling guilty about not talking to friends but uh, I think you did really well sustaining the interview for so long. I'm really glad the interview exists, and I got to hear it. So uh, basically, I like everything about the interview. I learned a lot about Sam. Thank you for doing it. So there you have it. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I got a lot of feedback on this one. Thanks for uh, sending your thoughts. I always appreciate that, and I do like to know what people are thinking out there. So if you do have thoughts on the program and you want to share them with me at any point, the email address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. My guest today is Karen Engelman, and her debut novel, The Stockholm Octavo, is now available from Echo. The book is uh, the November selection for the TNB Book Club, The Nervous Breakdown Book Club, the official book club of thenervousbreakdown.com, my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, go sign up for the club. It's a terrific deal for only $9.99 a month. That's less than the cost of a book, less than the cost of even a movie ticket, per month. You get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. The titles are selected uh, by Jonathan Evison and I. It's only $9.99 a month. So to sign up, just visit thenervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. Uh, go do that. It's a great deal. And even better, I interview all of the book club authors on this program so you can read the book and then you can hear my conversation with the author or vice versa. Okay. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. 
And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So without any further ado, let's get rolling. This here is my conversation with Karen Engelman, author of the Stockholm Octavo. I am standing up in my little writing room, which is about eight feet by eight feet square. And it has um, an antique little writing table, a big armchair. Well, not an armchair, but a a chair with arms, a wooden chair with arms. Um, I have a candle going, which I always have. And I have lots of toys around me. I have a, um, a gliding plastic Jesus. I have a Wonder Woman lunchbox. I have a beautiful folding fan. I have a mask, an Italian mask. And yeah, I have a sparrow made out of brass. I have all kinds of fun toys in here that inspire me and that I like to have around. Okay. So let's go back to, you said a gliding plastic Jesus. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. It's got gliding action. I won it at a, at a a family um, grab bag contest and it's 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 got wheels underneath. You know, he's got he's wearing little sandals, and if you push him, he glides. Okay, you know? it's like so. kind of like a rollerblading, or <laughs> a little bit. It's nice, you know. It's nice to have a few little different artifacts around. No, you know, it's weird. I think a lot okay. of times, a lot of times, writers. And by the way, like everything that you just described, based on your book, makes me think. Um, like, okay, this, this sounds exactly like I sort of would have imagined you, or at least these things, you know, having, having, having a fan. <laughs> Just in the interest of, uh, you know, uh, total disclosure, I also have a little Buddha in here. So, you know, I have, I, it, I have it runs little, the gamut. I have a little Buddha sitting in front of me and I have cows, which, uh, my wife got me back when we were dating when she went to Kansas. So yeah, I think writers often attach themselves to these little, like good luck charms or totems yes. or whatever yes. it is. Definitely. Definitely. So, oh, you have cows. I like that. Yeah. Are they large or small? No, they're just like plastic cows that she got at some like roadside gas station or whatever. And oh, I, I just I just always kept them, you know. And Great. Just, I, and then you, get, then you get attached to them, and then it's like, what am I going to do without my cows? You know. <laughs> yeah. Like, where's my Buddha? Yeah. Yeah. I have. I actually take the Buddha with me sometimes when I when I travel. Like, is so. it a metal or stone or what is it? Pardon me. What is the Buddha made of? You know, I'm picking them up right now. I'm. Uh, it's hard to tell. It's not plastic. I think it might be plaster. Um, or, no, it's plastic. It's plastic. It's a Jolly Buddha. It's a fat kind of Jolly Buddha, and he's got a, a wine thing and a, a and a fan. Interestingly enough, interesting. He's got a fan. Yeah. So, where are you geographically? Where do you live? Oh, um, I live about 30 minutes north of New York City in a little town called Dobbs Ferry. It's just on the Hudson River. 
so um, at certain points from my neighborhood, I can see the George Washington Bridge, and sometimes you can see the Empire State Building. So, um, yeah, just up from New York. Okay. So, I mean, do you get to the city a lot, or is it when you... <laughs> Um, you know, I, I don't get there as often as I would like, really, but it's I do go in for, for work sometimes, and I, I do go in for fun when I can. Um, but it's it's one of those things where I don't take nearly as much advantage of it as I would like to. Yeah, you know, I do the you same know, thing. I live, in, I live in Los Angeles. Of living in the suburbs sometimes. Well, and also, I have, you know, I have kids, so right. that kind of curtails your social activities and yeah. adventuring. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I, uh, I live in Los Angeles and I say the same thing about like getting to the beach and you know, it's, mm-hmm, it's, it's mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. It's a problem. It's weird. It's like, you kind of think, Oh, it's always going to be there. So I'll just go do it. And that's, that's a, that's a bad way to think about it. You really do. But you, you know, if you plan, you can go and have some fun. So, and it's nice. That yeah, was in last night. I had a fantastic, um, book launch at the mysterious bookshop in New York city. So that was, that was a thrill. It was really fun. Now, was that your first reading? It was my second. I actually, the book launched on Tuesday, the 23rd, and I had a local event at a Barnes & Noble in White Plains, New York, which was also wonderful, and then last night in New York City. So, Wow. And, and any nerves, or is that something that comes easily to you, doing the readings? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, two weeks ago, I found out I had to be on TV, and I broke out in hives. I was completely <laughs> covered with high. Well, not completely, but from the neck down. It's nerve-wracking, you know, because I'm used to being in this lovely little room with my toys, and usually I'm wearing gym clothes, <laughs> and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, we'd like you to be on TV, and you're like, oh, really? What, um, what, what TV, well. what t- what TV the people show? People were incredibly nice, but it was it was hard it's hard so, I mean, it's hard for me nerve wise it wasn't hard to do once i got there so but what and what what tv show were you on um i did an interview on cbs news with jeff glore and he has a series called author talk and you know i don't know that they air it on tv they have it up on their internet site but um maybe they i don't know i don't know if they ever air them on tv but it is uh, it's up on their website so he was great. He was really nice. It was so much easier than I ever imagined, but I suffered in advance, man. Ooh. Well, it's always the anticipation. It was tough. The anticipation is always worse than the actual thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I felt that way about the readings and the discussions and all that. I mean, it was getting through the first these first two, I feel a million times better today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, okay, I, I think I can do this. So, well, and I that believe- was... I've been reading up on you on the on on the web, and uh, it sounds like you you know you sort of had an entirely different uh, line of work and career before you got into writing. So you're coming into this uh, a bit later in your life than oh yeah 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 much later much much later. Um, I I've worked for many years uh, in the design field. I did graphic design, advertising, and mostly print design, uh, and, and a lot of book design. Um, but over the last, uh, so I, I, you know, I worked in, in that for like, I don't know, 30 years. And then I, and then I decided I loved writing and, um, decided that I wanted to get serious about it and allow myself the opportunity to see 
what I could find out about my own abilities and, you know, if I had, if I had what it took, so to speak. So I went back to school at the ripe age of um, 52. Wow. And where'd you go? I went to uh, Goddard College in Vermont. They have a low residency program that absolutely appealed to me. I met the director of, of the program in New York City. He had an information session. His name's Paul Selig. And uh, I went to the information session, and he just, the way he talked about the program and the way they uh, emphasize craft and the rigor of it, and I thought, you know, this suits me very well. It's The low residency means that you go to Vermont. I went to Vermont twice a year for an eight-day, very intensive um, seminar workshop. And, it, uh, you know, it suited me so well. I mean, I had another life. I had kids, and I was working also, so... Um, just going up and immersing yourself in the world of writing and then coming back to your own world but carving out the time you needed to get the work done. And that was the other, one of the other reasons I went uh, back to school was that I, I have kind of a Pavlovian response to deadlines. I mean, if someone says to me, I need 30 pages in, in you know two weeks, and I'll be like, Okay. And I think that's from working in, in print design because it's all deadline related. So I can do that. And then I had the opportunity to have really excellent feedback, um, which I totally got. And exposure to so many interesting people. I mean, it, it was a great experience for me. Great experience. The student body there is is extremely varied. Um doing all different kinds of work in all different kinds of genres. and um, But a real community writers, that's what I found it to be. So it was fantastic. Wow. Fantastic. Okay, and so you, you went there, and how much of the book did you have with you when you arrived, or did you basically start it once you started school? You know, I had an idea, and I had done... Um, I had done some research before I went there. I had read a lot of books about folding fans, especially um, a little bit about history, but I I knew the period that I wanted. I knew the book was going to have folding fans and it was going to have something to do with the number eight. Um, but I didn't, I, other than that, I didn't know. I didn't really have characters. I didn't. Yeah. So it, it, it really began there. And, um, that was part of the reason I think I, I went to school, too, because I thought, okay, I, I have two years here that I'm going to be able to see what I can make out of this crazy idea of mine. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Well, let's, and, let's, and let's talk I, I a little it. bit. Let's, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the origins of the book, because you mentioned a few things that, um, you know, I definitely want to discuss. Like, first of all, I guess, like, broadly, uh, historical fiction, you know, mm-hmm. and I would love to hear you talk about... Uh, how you gravitated towards that? You know, why history? Have you always like nursed a fascination with history and with Swedish history in particular, and with this particular era? Like, what, 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 what you know, what was it that brought you to this? Well, I don't know, Brad. It's really funny because I, I'm not a like that's that's not a genre I would say is like my favorite or that I even imagined ever that I would write historical fiction, but. 
I <clears throat> I lived in Sweden for nine years, long time ago. I mean, I've been in the States now for 25 years, 26 years or something. And But something about that experience in Sweden was deep, very deep inside of me. And when I, the other thing about Sweden that was very special for me or made a big impact was the city of Stockholm. And it was the first European city I ever visited. And when I landed there, and I come from Iowa, okay? So I'm coming from Davenport, Iowa, and I'm landing in Stockholm, Sweden. Well, no, why did and you Stockholm go there? Why did you go such there? a beautiful city. It has incredibly well-preserved historic structures. It's like water everywhere. And it's not, it was, it was really magical. And it made a very deep impression. And the thing about Stockholm is that for, for me, my experience of it was that you can't escape the Gustavian era when you're in Stockholm. Gustav III was the king at the end of the 18th century. And his spirit is so much a part of that city. At least that's how I experienced it even then. And I knew very little about history at all and didn't delve into it. But mm, it just sat there for a long time. And then when I started to get serious about writing, that, I guess, the impact of Stockholm. And I wanted to express that somehow. And you, like I said, you can't avoid Gustav III when you talk about Stockholm. And I thought, oh, okay, well, let's, let's investigate that. So I started reading. After I, actually, after I started school, I started reading more seriously about the period, the Gustavian period. And um, some of the characters that were living then, there's a very famous Swedish poet named Carl Michael Bellman, and I read all these books about him, and I just loved it. I thought it was fascinating. You know, Sweden today is so modern and so, you know, it's this incredibly well-tuned social democracy, and it's, you know, human rights, and it's an incredible country. And, you know, back in the late 18th century was kind of when the seeds to that were being sown. And it, But at the same time, it was like this monarchy with ruthless, you know, fighting between the aristocracy and the monarchy and, you know, magic. And, you know, it was just such a different time. So had more had more juice to it, I guess. So what brought you to Stockholm in the first place? Like you said, you let you started in Iowa and then you got to Stockholm, but what what was it that brought you there and why did you live there for nine years? Well, I I really and truly, I went for love. Um, I was a graduate student at the time and I was studying theater design. I mean, I have, a, I have an art background. I have an art undergraduate degree. I studied illustration and design and then... You know, I, I met. I, I worked in a small design studio, and I met this guy, and he was in theater design. He's like, oh, you should take some classes. You'd really like it. And um, so I did, and I I liked him even better. And he had been in Sweden um, doing some – he spent a year abroad there working in the theater, and he really wanted to go back and work professionally there. And I thought, hmm, well – I really like him. So I cobbled together a, a an independent study to do scene painting at the Stockholm Opera. So um, I had got somehow finagled this. I 
It would never happen today. I somehow cobbled this together and got a student loan and got a, some kind of program approved. And I went over to Stockholm and my boyfriend, who I later married, and I'm actually still married to, um, came over a little bit later. And, you know, when you're young and it just was kind of an adventure. And so we ended up staying. I never, I never did scene painting. I never finished the degree, but uh, I did work um, as an illustrator and art director, living over there. So. And you were able to do it, like you were able to somehow get work permits and get jobs and whatnot. Well, we spent the first year kind of working under the table. We did all kinds of illustration work. I don't know how for advertising agencies or whatever, and then, and then we got deported after, after the first year. But right when we were being deported, um, my husband, Eric, got an offer from the theater in Malmö, Sweden, to work there as a set designer. And so all that made things happen, and then we got working papers, yeah. And then we were, then we had the visas, so we ended up staying for nine years. Okay, and and you could speak the language, or did you learn it while you were there? You know, I learned it when I got there, um... One of the things, Sweden has incredibly liberal um, policies regarding immigrants. And although we weren't really immigrants, we were allowed to go to the free schools that they offered for immigrants. So Eric already spoke Swedish pretty well, but I I knew nothing. So I took a summer course at the University in Lund, and then I did the immigrant school. And it was, I think, three months, and I went four or five hours every day. And I got enough Swedish that I could function. And shortly thereafter, I got the job at the newspaper, which is kind of unbelievable. But I had to read. I mean, I had to learn to read quickly. And uh, after time, yeah, my Swedish got really good. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, yeah, my wife and I went to Stockholm uh, a couple years ago and, you know, spent like three or four days there. It was beautiful. It is beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's, Everybody has a different favorite city, I guess, in the world. But um, yeah, it's it's a really it's a cool city. What so. part of t- what part of town did you live in? Pardon me. What part of the city were you living in? Well, um, I lived. I didn't live in Stockholm for very long at all. I only lived in Stockholm for about a month because I went to the university in southern Sweden in Lund. And after the summer, I got there, and then I went up, and the whole like my whole independent study thing fell through. And then I moved back down to southern Sweden to Malmö. So when I, li- when I did live there, I lived on uh, Söder Malm, which is called Söder. It's, a, it's just it's this very hilly. It's where the Stomatol's sure, yeah. toothpaste sign is. Yeah, And the big uh, elevator. Yeah, I mean... So no. I lived in, a, I lived in a, a third floor, third or fourth floor cold water walk-up, which is unbelievable to me now, but there was no hot water. <laughs> was it winter? <laughs> it was the fall and I had to I had a I did have a stove so I could make tea and heat water on the stove and then I went to the public bath to take baths. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no wonder I wanted to leave, right? It was <laughs> a, I thought, oh no. And you know, it, my Eric had friends in Malmö and we it was much easier for us to function in Malmö, so that's where we ended up. Gotcha. So uh, let's talk about the number eight, and let's talk about, uh, I'm, I'm going to pronounce this uh, properly, I hope, cardamancy. Is that right? 
Cardamancy, yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. then also uh, the Yeah, those are, t- well, you know, the number eight was a construct that I thought of when I first thought of this novel. And it's because when I was first thinking about this project, I was thinking of it more as a design project than a, than a, a novel. And I guess that's just because I've been doing design for such a long time, and I like these I like these hybrid forms, whatever. And uh, somebody had given me this weird little book. It's called the. Uh, it's from Germany. It's called the Magic Book, and it's um, it's hard to describe. It's so much easier to show people. But a book traditionally is made up of signatures, and the signature has eight pages. So the way this book is constructed, if you flip through it at different points along the open-ended pages of the book, you see a different series of pictures. So this is very complicated. It's like, oh, my God, just cut me off if I'm going on too long. But I wanted to write a book that you could either read sequentially, the pages sequentially, or if you flip through it in a certain way, you would read one person's story. So that was this crazy idea. And of course, it was literally not impossible. I guess if I spent 10 years thinking about how to do it and constructing it. But that's where the idea of the eight characters came from. I thought, okay, I'm going to write this book with eight characters, and there's eight pages in a signature, and there's going to be eight signatures in the book. And so that's kind of how I started. And then I started looking into the into this whole thing with eight and started finding out that, you know, it's not, people don't pay much attention to eight in Western culture. It's very big in China, but we don't really think about it too much. And there were a couple of very weird esoteric writings that I read about eight. And there was something called the divine, I don't know if he called it the divine geometry. And I'm probably not going to remember the name of the author, but it was you know, a a Masonic author, and he had written this whole book about geometry and how it's related to architecture and, you know, uh, sort of early Masonic code and what the octagon meant and all that stuff. And I thought, ooh, this is kind of fun. And I started delving more into it, and I found that mm, in Christian churches, the eight is the number of uh, resurrection and rebirth. And if you go into a church, oftentimes old-fashioned churches, especially the baptismal font is in the shape of an octagon. And it has a lot of Christian symbolism, but it's also present in Islamic culture. I was in Istanbul last year, and if you go to the mausoleums, um, they're in the shape of an octagon. So I thought, oh, this is like juicy material here. So I kind of got into this whole thing about the eights and eight characters and eight as a uh, a basis of the book, of this thing called the octavo. And I also like the octavo because it's kind of a, it's kind of a cool word. It came from a, the first portable book, the, the size. It's about a paper size. So I thought, oh, it's a book. And it's also um, a musical term, and it's also a poetic term. And so it has all these fun, kind of disparate um, areas that it touches on. But I thought, okay, we'll see what I can cook together from this. Well, and plus, uh, doesn't it have, I mean, I think I read that you uh, are born on the 8th as well. So it's got some sort of yes, pers- personal Yes, I was born on the 8th. Uh, I have, I'm one of eight children. 
and uh, you know, so I guess it's been fun. Oh, and I have this keychain that I bought when I was in college, so a long time ago, and it's a big brass oval stamped with the number eight. I don't know, you know, those things just kind of follow you. It's just been following me around, waiting for me to to write this book. No, it's like it sounds very. Myst- I mean, it sounds almost mysterious. You know, all these like different things all these different elements of your story that like when you you know when you're at the beginning of it you have no idea how they're even going to function together uh much less, yeah you know come together to form a it, book but then you, you just kept kind of following your nose it sounds like a very intuitive process well it was and it was it was i was glad that i did it that way because again i guess having worked in design for such a long time where everything is very structured and the parameters are all set and you you know you know what your intent is and so doing this um master's degree i thought okay i'm just going to let let's see what happens let's try and do it intuitively and it was I mean, it was a long process, but it was a really, ultimately, a very satisfying one. And I was so surprised at the kind of things that came out of that. Even the whole eight thing or things I thought about, like there were places in the book where I would have, I had Mrs. Sparrow, she's the fortune teller in the book, and she makes a reference to a church in Stockholm called um, Katharina Church. Um, And... I never, you know, I didn't really, I knew it existed. I don't, I don't think I'd ever visited there when I lived in Stockholm. But um, when I went to look at pictures of um, Katarina Church, it has an octagonal um, bell tower. <laughs> it was like, oh, isn't that interesting? I mean, I could have picked any number of churches in Stockholm. There's a lot of them. But, you know, stuff like that is just was part of the process that I thought was so fascinating and synchronicities you know yeah stuff just emerges i it was it was really fun it was really fun did you ever did you ever find yourself struggling or feeling like this thing isn't going to work or did it, did it just sort of build and build and build until it was done oh no there were there were many difficult m- moments along the way certainly because i found that for me getting the characters was really fun and i totally enjoyed that. I started by writing character sketches and character backstory and stuff like that. But then getting the action going, plot was very hard for me. And structure was really hard for me too. Maybe because I was trying to do this intuitive thing that I didn't start out with an outline at all. I I kind of, I mean, I knew the period. I knew the date that King Gustav died, but I didn't know where that was going to come in the book beginning, middle, or end, you know. Um, so there were, yeah, there were some moments when I was like, oh, my God, what is this thing? Um, but I, I had some very, very wonderful advisors, and they were just like, keep going, keep going, keep going. And part of that, I think, for writers is that whole notion of writing, just writing it out, especially for a draft, just write it all out, and see, then you drain the sink and see what you got. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what I did. But it was, yeah, there were moments that were really hard. And the revision process also was just, it took, the revision process took longer than the book, writing the first draft, let's put it that way. Wow, okay. And so um, I want to get to that, but I, I, I want to pick up the thread with regard to research because I do want to hear you talk about cardamancy and the fans and stuff. Oh, yeah, just yeah. Just because... The, um, 
Well, the fan thing, that's, um, that's also one of those childhood memories that kind of has stuck with me. My, my mother had folding fans, not a, like a fine collection or anything, but she just had some of them that she'd collected. And I always thought they were really beautiful and kind of amazing objects. And so precise and at the same time so fragile and so I always enjoyed folding fans and then when I started to think about writing this book and setting it in the late 18th century I knew I wanted to put folding fans in um, because they were an important part of women's everyday well at least of a certain class uh, everyday dress that was something they carried with them and they they served all kinds of purposes Mm, they were status indicators, fashion, wealth. They used them to, you know, indicate their feelings, send little messages. Um, and people, folding fans, once I started researching them, I read a lot of books about fan construction and history and all that. And people used to put all kinds of things in fans, you know, like clocks and um, telescopes and you know, all kind, it was really, it's so interesting. And you've got these objects that are extremely expensive and fragile, um, but, you know, everybody had them. And I, I, I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to include fans in a completely, in a completely different way. Like what, what could you maybe use a fan for that was not the way you'd expect it? Like there's a famous quote, and of course I can't remember the, the person, but it's something about, you know, women use fans as weapons, and I, I, I should get the quote for you and read it, but I thought, oh, what if it really was a weapon? What about that idea? So I just um, kind of put it into the mix. So, okay, so just to, like, try to illustrate this a little bit better, when I'm, you know, trying to imagine the way things were back here in the, uh, was it late 18th century? Am I remembering this right? Yep. Um, when you have women carrying these fans obviously they're using them to fan themselves but you say they're also right. using them to like indicate feelings and communicate with one another like what does this look like you know yeah well you know it's it's never it was never really documented until the early 19th century but there's a lot of writing about something called the language of the fan and it was a way of communicating usually in a flirtatious or a romantic way um to indicate your feelings to somebody uh, a gentleman that you might be interested in. And, you know, they were just simple gestures that if another, this person was paying attention, you could indicate, you know, yes, no, I love you. I hate you. <laughs> How, what time I'm going to meet you, follow me, listen to this, whatever. So there's a, there's a whole, um, you know, series of different uh, gestures that you can make to, to do that. Now, I, you know, there's lots of discussion like, oh, this can't have happened, that's ridiculous, whatever, but I suspect that it did happen because I, I think oftentimes those romantic liaisons were perhaps not approved or um, you wanted to be very private about it, and so you would just try to use your fan. Also, you know, the fan, how people moved in that time um, was really important. It was how you used your body. Well, body language is still important, but it was a, there was a whole, um, I don't know, there was a whole 
expected kind of finesse that you should have. I mean, that was that was something you aspired to have, that you would use your hands, especially women. Hands were very important, and the fan was kind of an extension of the hand because nothing else showed, really. Well, bosoms sometimes, but, you know, otherwise everything was really pretty well covered up. Just bosoms and fans, that's it. Yeah, bosoms and fans and hands, yeah. Sometimes arms, but, you know. It was a it was a very different time, and I, I I don't know. I think people, like I said, people have different body language today that they perhaps it's less consciously used. But um, yeah, I just uh, I thought it was fascinating, and I also thought you know women's roles in that time were the, everything they they had to play it behind the scenes. So the fact that they would have this kind of secret language made sense. Well, yeah, I know, and, and it feels kind of cinematic to me. You know, I, I want to see this. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> me too. Yeah. <laughs> um, just to, you know, imagining all these things and imagining people that really are skillful with folding fans. When I was in the process of writing it, I, I was um, had some visitors here at my house, one of whom is a, a ballet dancer, a Norwegian ballet dancer. And she had danced the Don Quixote and done the fan dance. So she was showing me like how she had learned to handle a fan. And it was so cool. It was just like snap, close, you know, all these little gestures. And it was really, I mean, I thought, wow, how cool is that? And you like, you really have to practice. It's, it's skill. It's a skill. You'd really have to practice. It's hard. I'm really terrible with a fan. I mean, I can, if it's a, if it's an easy one to open, it's fine, but anything else. Wow. Hard. I, I sort of want to see a revival. I think this sounds sort of convenient. You can just wave it a certain way when you want people to go away. You don't even have to talk to anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Maybe there'll be a new, a new, uh, language published. <laughs> Uh, that would be fun. So let's get to uh, cartomancy, because this is another a- aspect of your book and a part of the history that I find really fascinating. So can you talk about, like, the origins uh, of, for instance, tarot and, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff? Explain, yeah, yeah. Explain. Well, that was like a lucky find for me because, you know, card games and card play were always a part of the book. That was a really that was central to social life and at the time. So that was a really easy thing to incorporate. Um, the fortune telling aspect, you know, I thought about cards because cards were, you know, of course popular and, and card fortune telling with cards, um, had been around for a long time, but the great thing about the late 18th century is that it's when cardamancy really became a formalized published kind of, science, if you will, or I don't know what you want to call it, um, in interest. And this all, it all really started, that whole formalization started in France, which makes sense too, because that's where the first, you know, the first encyclopedia was published in France at the time. So publishing all this detailed information about different subjects was popular. And the first book about cardamancy was published in, I think, 1770, by a guy who went under the pen name of Etiala. And his method was using um, a piquet deck, which is a playing card deck that has, I think, 32 cards or something. It's not a normal deck. It's for a specific game. But anyway, he published his first book and, you know, it was kind of a successful thing. And then a little bit later, 
um, a gentleman by the name of Antoine Cord de Gavelin. I don't know if that's a proper pronunciation, but he um, came up with this idea of, or he came up with this idea that the tar- the tarot deck, because the tarot deck really is a, a normal playing card deck as well. It's from an Italian card game. It's a 52-card deck that has an extra 22 trump cards. And so he came up with this idea that the tarot deck was somehow communicating um, knowledge from the Egyptians. You know, it's a really interesting story, (laughs) his story, but it it was his idea. uh, This was before the Rosetta Stone had been found, so nobody knew what hieroglyphics meant or anything, but he felt that that the symbols on the tarot deck were somehow communicating esoteric knowledge. And he published a book, um, I think in 1781. I, I could be wrong about the dates, but around then anyway. And um, it just uh, obviously has taken hold of people's imaginations ever since. And it's it's huge. But it, so when I... Um, was thinking about my character of Mrs. Sparrow and what she would use to tell her fortunes and how she would use the site. And um, cards were a natural because she was already a card player and these other forms were being invented. And I just thought, well, Mrs. Sparrow could invent her own form. So <laughs> it was, it was so, it was really um a necessity because I had written the whole first draft and I had this idea about the eight and the octagon and the octavo, but I didn't really know what it was. So somebody, a friend of mine read the first draft and she goes, well, the octavo is really cool, but how do you do it? And I thought, I I don't know. So that's when I, I decided um, you know, I was doing more and more reading all the time. So I was, I was constantly reading about different topics. And I was reading about, I was trying to find card tricks or games or something. And I thought, oh, yeah, cardamancy. And so I made the octavo into a a form of fortune telling. Hmm. So uh, with regard to your research process, like one of the things about historical fiction that I always envy is the fact that with a lot of it, you, you sort of have a built-in infrastructure because you're working from historical narrative. But with your particular book, you know, you're, you're obviously making this stuff up. You're not working, you know, you're working within a time frame, but you're not working mm-hmm. with an actual, actual people narrative. Um, so when you get into the research process, like how involved was it and what, and what did it involve? Well, I think the research was crucial because it was kind of the foundation of the, of the, of the house. If you, if you think of the, like building a story, like a house, it was the ground that it all had to, had to stand on. So for me, it had to be really solid or as solid as I could make it without driving myself completely crazy. Um, I wanted the dates of, you know, the French revolution, what was going on in France, what was going on in Sweden, who those characters were, when certain edicts were announced. And I, wanted that to be as close to real as I could. Um, I thought the setting, it was very important that the setting be believable, that the way that people lived and ate and moved around was um, accurate. 
and then let my characters kind of run free in, uh, you know, on top of all this or in, in between, underneath, whatever they wanted to do. But I, I, I think it's, um, for me, it was important that that be believable. I mean, I'm sure there are things in there that are wrong. I mean, I know there's a couple things that I fudged a little bit. Um, and I'm sure a historian reading this would be fine things that are in error. But at a certain point, once I felt like my foundation was solid, then I said, okay, we'll let them, we'll let them go. We'll let the characters go. Right. And like the imagination takes over at that point. Pardon? I said the imagination takes over at that point. It, it, it kind of has to because you can really get lost in the research process and, and find yourself like look, trying to look up, you know, well, what would that button have been made of? And, oh, was, was that street, you know, was it named Little Gray Monk Cotton or was it named something? So you can, you can kind of get lost. And, and if you're a historian writing nonfiction, I think it's crucial. But for fiction, I just thought, well, it has to live on its own at some point. So there's a lot of factoids that got cut out of the book during the revision process. Just because you know it kills, it can kill a story. Right. Well, no. I mean, like in talking about the process and how you can get bogged down in it, I'm reminded of a. I, I want to say I was reading something, and it was a it was a conversation with Michael Shabon or Shabon, however you pronounce mm-hmm. that. And he was talking about research, and you know, obviously the, the the necessity of it with certain books anyway. But how sometimes you can trick yourself into thinking you need to do research when what you should be doing is writing. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I had an advisor at, at school as well who, who warned me of the same thing. She goes, you know, do it, but then let it go. And um, you can always, you know, fact, fact check. I mean, copy editors are going to help you with that as well. You know, if you get a one year wrong or something. And um, But yeah, he's absolutely right. You can, you can really get lost. And then it, then it becomes another procrastination tool, you know, like, oh, I, I really probably better do more research. So I won't write today. I'll research instead. So that's that's a danger. So, and then what about the actual publication process? Because, you know, you get through all the hoops of, of writing the thing, doing the research, getting the manuscript into shape. Like, t- take us through the part of it where you went out to find an agent and a publisher. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I did it really the old-fashioned, well, some modern way, some old-fashioned way. I, um, once I had the manuscript finished, I decided that I was going to go ahead and try to find an agent. And so I started by looking at books that I loved and finding out who the agents were for those books. And that was kind of my first step. And then I made a schedule for myself so that I would send queries. Um, I had a goal of like seven a week or something like that. And queries are the letters and people want different amounts of information and they want, sometimes they want resumes and sometimes they want three pages or three chapters or 10 pages. So some people want mail, some people want email. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty arduous process, but I, I started that, um, in May, I think it was like three years ago. And, um, it took about five months uh, before I found an agent. And, you know, the agents have a process, too. I mean, they get tons of submissions, and they, you know, they have readers. Some of them have readers in the office that are the first 
the doorkeepers, and then if it gets past the doorkeepers, then the agents read it. But, um, yeah, in September, uh, yeah, September three years ago, I, I, I found an agent, and um, she had agented a wonderful book that I loved called The Historian, and I thought, oh, she likes this book. She's, she should like mine, and she did. Wow. <laughs> so um, once she got it, she sold it pretty quickly. Uh, she sold it in about three weeks, which totally shocked me. But um, but then the real work started, and the revision process was um, arduous and long. You know, I, I I had this vision of revi- I had this vision that it would be, oh, you know, I'll move some things around and change the, some adjectives and I'll be done. Ooh, no, it was much bigger than that. Was a it was a it was a it was a rehab it was a gut rehab I mean all the characters stayed the same well not the, the some of them stayed the same some of them got combined and the octavo was there and all that stuff but um it was it was a huge amount of work I had to restructure the whole book because I had structured it very formally almost I, that's again I think my design background coming through so I had done this very um, I don't know, kind of a rhythmic structure that didn't work for a novel. And so I had to revise the whole structure and when characters were introduced and how information was revealed and ultimately a much, much, much better book. But it was a lot of work. Who is your your editor? I think the revision took about two and a half years. Oh my goodness. And who is your editor? My editor is Lee Boudreau at Echo Press, which is a, an imprint of HarperCollins. Okay, yeah, she's and great. She, she was they they were fantastic, fantastic, hard but fantastic. But it yields a good it yields a good final product. I mean, you feel good about. I mean, was there any point during the process where you were pushing back and they were pushing you, and then or did you feel like it always basically worked itself out? You know, was there ever any really intense conflict? Uh, no, I, I have to say there wasn't. Um, there were things when I they would ask, there were a couple things that they asked me to do and I said no, and that was always uh, really respectfully revo- resolved. I have to say, um, I would say no. They would it was really <clears throat> couched with most of the editing was couched in questions like, what does this mean? Um, why why are they doing this? I don't understand this or things like that. So, um, but when, it, when there were suggestions that were made and I didn't agree, then I would say so. And it was, it was very civilized. It was wow. very civilized, but I have to say, and most of the changes that were requested, there was, it was never just like change this. It was, what if you tried this or have you thought about that or, um, if you think this might be a good idea to help explain to your reader X, and um, so it was, it was very civilized, and I, I learned a lot about pacing and structure and how to keep, at least I hope, keep people turning the pages. So it was, it was really, um, it was, it was hard really hard. It's nothing like when you, when you send it all in, you think, okay, I'm done, and they're like. Well, not quite. <laughs> it's called false summits. <laughs> so there were a couple of moments. There were, there were more than a couple, but ultimately 
so worth it. So, so worth it. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you want, when the book finally does make its way into bookstores and it's in print and it's permanent and it's bound, you want it to be something that you know you put everything you possibly could into. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's true. Although it's funny because I did a reading last night and I was like, damn, I wish I hadn't used that word twice in those two pages. (laughs) (laughs) So there's always something you could change, but, Always. Always. But but yes, you do at a certain point you do have to let it go and you have to say, Okay, this really has to leave me now. So And so what about uh expectations? You know, like are you like like what do you what are your highest hopes for it? Are you just pleased that it's in print and you know, do you find yourself very involved, like plotting marketing strategy? Like what is your experience of that? Um, you know, I of course I hope it finds a broad readership. It's um it's already been sold in oh, 11 foreign languages. So that makes me really happy. Um, yeah, of course you want, you know, a writer wants their work to be read and appreciated. Um, it's been, it's so weird because, you know, it just launched three days ago. So it's, it's, it's hard to say, but, yeah, of course. I would. I, I. I would be thrilled if people read it and talked about it and enjoyed the story and you know thought about their own eight, their own octavos, and how they relate to other people. And you know, so yeah. And what about what about uh, film rights? Are you, are you trying to sell those? I do have a film agent, um, so we'll see. It's pretty early in the game for that. Well, sure, but it's, it, I don't know. I just I just want to see these fans on screen. That's all I want. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. The fans, the whole, the cards, the whole thing. Yeah. You know, there's nothing like watching people that know how to hold. Actually, dexterity. The whole. If you ever go to watch people that really are good with cards, oh, it's so cool. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really fun. Fans would be the same thing. Have to be a lot of a lot of training, boy. But see that would that's what actors want. Then they can get an Oscar and they can talk about how they like had to train to use the fans and Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so Yeah, oh uh, listen, a film, are you kidding? It's just, it's, doesn't every novelist do that? Like, oh, who's gonna play the mm, Usan? Yeah. So who's gonna play who? There's got I mean there's gotta be some uh some Swedish actors, you know, and Swedish noir is hot right now, so like this is like eighteenth century. <laughs> yeah, Swedish it's kind noir. of like old fashioned Swedish noir, so that's true. There's 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 definitely a a couple of murders in it, so it's the bill. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so what about, okay, so you have this book coming out and obviously you're going to be doing interviews and you're going to be doing readings and whatnot, but are you working on anything else? Yeah. Um, this was actually another bit of good advice that I got from my, one of my advisors at school. And once I finished my manuscript, she said, okay, you want to put this out in the world. You want to try to sell it, but in the meantime, start on something else. So... I started on something else right after I finished school and before the book was sold and I've kind of worked on it intermittently when, you know, when, when the manuscript for Stockholm Octavo was at the, at the edit, at the editors, then I had a, a chunk of time and I would try to delve back into this other manuscript. So I have a, I have a sloppy first draft, really sloppy that I actually opened the lid of the box a couple of days ago, read the first I don't know, 20 pages. It requires, it's going to require a ton of work, but 
it's something much different, much lighter. It's um, and the kind of like the, how what folding fans are to the Stockholm Octavo, greeting cards are to this new project. It's kind of going to center around greeting cards. And it's not set in Sweden. No, no, it's going to be in New York. So you've moved it's going to be in New York. So. Well, but you never know. It's just an early first draft. This could morph into uh, you know people using greeting cards as weapons in the. <laughs> Don't they already yeah. kind of in a way? Oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. Gosh. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, we did have, what was that? Uh, yeah, that postal scare we had after 9-11 when uh, people were sending things in the mail. Oh, right. The, the anthrax. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm glad I planted that It hadn't crossed my mind, scene. Brad, but, you know, you, I'll credit you with the idea if I decide to use it. <laughs> so um, The murder well, weapon. Yeah. And then, um, like, what about, like, you, you mentioned that you've sold the book in foreign countries. Like, are you planning on going over to these foreign countries to do readings? Are you going to go to Sweden and do anything? Or is it still tentative? You know, I don't know, because uh, they aren't even, well, it's published in Norway and the UK already, and, and Spain. Actually, Spain was on Monday. Um, but I don't ha- I, right now, I don't have any plans. Maybe in the spring, because I'm, I was planning to go over anyway, so I might go to Amsterdam and maybe um, Germany. I don't know where in Germany, but, you know, that's all still kind of up in the air. And, you know, personal appearances by debut authors, you know, most people are like, who? So, so it's, it has to be worth their, it has to be worth their money. And there's so much more leverage in things like I'm doing with you or blog posts or, you know, that kind of thing. So the, the, the personal appearance thing, that remains to be seen. It'd be fun. Absolutely. But again, I don't know the full schedule and I think that they may want to combine forces and, you know, if I come over, I come to a bunch of different places, but. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's yeah just, I just we'll want see. you to. I just basically want you to have a boondoggle where you get to go on vacation to all these wonderful places and. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm kind of hoping. So. And yeah, have you, and have we'll you gotten have you gotten like the foreign editions of your book written in the, you know with the full foreign language rollout? Have you have you held them? No, not yet. I have the I have the UK edition, but um, I haven't gotten a Spanish and I haven't gotten the Norwegian yet. So, but they just really literally came out. So although the Spanish version I think is available in the U S I, sh- I have to go look. I, I think it is. I think it's for us publication as well. So I could probably find it in a bookstore, but yeah, haven't seen it in a foreign language yet, which is, it's a little weird because you have no idea what the translation is. <laughs> yeah. So you just have to trust that they, they did a good job. So, I'm sure they did. I have very good publishers. Well, yeah. I mean, that's really the key. If you're working with good publishers, they're probably going to have good translators and they're going to have yes. good designers. Yeah. And that's actually a good way to, to, to round it out, seeing as you have this design background uh, and so much of your, you know, this is actually something I've been meaning to, to bring up, as you've mentioned it a few times throughout our conversation, but the fact that you worked in design mm-hmm. uh, earlier in your career, like I'm always fascinated with how writers bring their other experiences and particularly occupational experiences into their creative writing work. Uh, Mm -hmm. whether, you know, like sometimes you'll have a writer who is an architect and they'll build their books the way that they sort of conceive of buildings, or you'll have an art, you know, a writer who was a musician and thinks of their, um, you know, their work somehow compositionally related to music. And it sounds like, you know, with your visual design background, that was the case. 
And I'd love to hear you talk about that. And then also I'm interested in knowing, um, you know, how did you move through the design, like the physical design process uh, with your own book and how much input did you have and so on? Oh, well, in the, in the process of writing the book, because I had this idea for the octavo, I did a lot of, um, diagram. I mean, I did all the, the diagrams for it. So that helped me think about how the octavo worked. So I did drawings of these expanded octavos and how did they fit together and what did that mean? And then when I put the card spread together, I, I did all those um, diagrams, you know, on the, uh, on the computer and put all that stuff together. I think also as a, with a visual arts background, um, I, you know, I, I like detail. I like to, I like the reader to see the detail that the characters are seeing. That was really important to me. Um, as far as the actual design of the book, I, all I did was the diagrams and I did the timeline in the beginning and they took it from there and they did a beautiful job cover too. Uh, you know, the designer for the cover did a much better job than I would have ever done because she saw the book in the way that it was, which is the the U.S. cover anyway. It's like, it's meant to be a fun book. It's like, it's a fun book. It's not a serious book. And I had designed, you know, of course I designed my own cover. Of course I did. But it was really kind of dark and a little pedestrian, frankly. So I was thrilled that they, the Echo came up with this other design. Yeah, I was just wondering if like you were like trying to resist your because I know how publishers are. They tend to want to run that part of the process, and it would be hard if like you have a design background not to want to sort of try to assert some control. And you know, I think oh yeah, you know, I think back to my own uh, experience publishing, where my my publisher made the mistake of asking me for input on what I thought my cover should look like. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> oh, it's so well. embar- it's so embarrassing to think because I remember putting together like this big concept and. I really thought about it, and thank goodness they didn't listen to me. <laughs> but that's it. I think they have to guard themselves because that could be that could be dangerous, time-consuming, and expensive if they let authors loose with their covers. Um, I, I, as I said, I did try, but you know what? I'm glad that they just basically they were. It was. I did go into a meeting. I did talk to the the art director about it, and she had a couple of ideas. And when I saw what she was going to do, I was like, "Oh, that's just great." Well, so. that, that's good though. Cause like, you know, I think that the publishers, like, like you said, like you, you were talking about earlier, you know, with regards to the two and a half year editorial process, like as arduous mm-hmm. as that was, uh, it's sort of amazing that it remained cordial and productive because in a lot of businesses, regardless of what it is, whether it's publishing and it's a creative field or whether it's something else like collaborating intensively on a project, uh, for that long can be difficult, but publishing is really interesting and unique, I think, in terms of how gentlemanly and gentlewomanly it is. It really is that I, way. Yes. Is that your experience too? Yeah, that's, that's my experience. And it's also my experience, uh, in talking with people. Like it's not, mm. all, you know, it's not always the case 100% of the time, but you know, to a, to a surprisingly high degree it is. And I think that's a, um, testament to the kinds of people who gravitate towards it. And I think it's just sort of maybe the, the tradition or something, but yeah, you know, I think yeah. when it comes I found that I found the exact same thing. It's been like amazingly pleasant mm. and yeah, cordial and interesting and 
fun. Yeah. Well, and, and like with regard to the cover and the design, you know, I think publishers want to be collaborative. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess the nightmare scenario is where the author looks at the cover that the publisher has landed on and, and hates it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm sure that happens. I'm, I'm positive that happens. Um, and, and sometimes I'm sure the answer is, well, you know, this is what we think goes. Actually, I had an interesting experience with that. I had with the, um, my publisher from the Netherlands and who is a fantastic human being. And she sent me the cover and I had to respond honestly. And I said, I'm, I don't feel like this really expresses the book. And I said, why? But I also said, you know, I know you have your reasons. And she responded, thank you. And here are my reasons. And here's what we want to do. And here's why. And I said, that is completely fine with me. It's your, you know, it's your country. You know what your readers like, and I'm going to respect that. And then about a month later, after the, like, even after the book had already gone, hadn't gone to print, but it already, everything had gone out, and she sent an email and said, you know, I really thought about what you said, and I've reconsidered, and I'm going to do a different cover. And I was like, wow. So it's, it is, it's, it's pretty amazing. Well, it pretty is. Amazing. And I'll tell you, too, like, you, 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 you have to be uh, aware of how remarkable this is, you know, what, what's happened for you. Like you've written this book, uh, you know, you got your MFA in your fifties, you wrote your, your book, you found a great agent and you've got your book published in the States with a great publisher, with a great editor. And now in 11 foreign countries, like that's, uh, that's wonderful. It's surreal. Brad, I'm telling you, I'm like pinching myself. It's, it's, it's wild. I mean, in a, totally fun way of course but it is it is wild it's well, wild I, yeah uh, i can oh it's i'm thrilled i am filled with gratitude because what? it has been an amazing process well that's uh it's wonderful to hear i'm i'm uh i'm happy for you and i wish you luck here on this uh book tour i hope the book does great and uh i thank you for taking the time to talk with me oh thank you so much it's been a blast Okay, everybody, there you go. That is Karen Engelman. Go get her book. It is a novel. It is called The Stockholm Octavo. It is out there now in hardcover from Echo. You can find her online at karenengelman.com. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. Follow it. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. If you would like to read my strange collection of intermittent personal tweets, the show has a Facebook presence. And if you would like to email me to let me know what is happening in your life, the address, once again, is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And hey, don't forget to sign up for the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Just $9.99 a month. That's all it is. And for that incredibly low price, you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. You can pay safely and securely with PayPal or a major credit card. To sign up, please visit thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. And also, don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It is available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It's totally free, and it is the best way to listen to this program. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And I think that's it. I think that's all for now. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. If you're traveling, safe travels. If you're stressed out, uh, hopefully the podcast is giving you a way to mitigate that stress at least a little bit. Just put on your headphones, walk outside, uh, or go for a drive, or hide in a bedroom, 
It will all be over very soon. Please remember that Montaigne did not know how to swim and that Edith Wharton and her husband used separate bedrooms. I will be back again soon with another conversation free-flowing in nature. Do you hear me? Free-flowing in nature. I will be talking to an author for your entertainment pleasure. Uh, That is exciting. So go eat a lot of food. Uh, Try to feel grateful. It it sucks to be a turkey, doesn't it? Imagine being a turkey. It could be worse. Be nice uh, to yourself. Be nice to strangers. Be nice to friends and family whenever possible. What else can I tell you? How else can I try to micromanage your life? (laughs) 